Hello and welcome to the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. It is Monday and we have a special two-show week for you. Today, we wrap up our discussion of the January theater festivals. And later in the week, we have a very special episode, an interview with the brilliant and talented Lauren Warsham. She just wrapped Dog Days, a dystopian opera at the Prototype Festival. Her band Sky Pony has a new album out, and their show, The Wildness, opens at Ars Nova next month. We had a fantastic conversation, and that episode will be out on Wednesday. But for now, our final word on the January theater festivals. Enjoy the show. This is our festival finale wrap-up, only not really, because festival we're also going to talk festival stuff next week on it with a totally new and different panel who's seeing festival shows that are lingering into the end of the month. Oh, like the exponential stuff? Yes. And, oh, right. yes. Nice. Cool. But today we are here yet again. Shall we do introductions? Sure. I'm Liz. I'm Fuck Yeah Great Plays. And this is Jack. I work at the Public Theater. My views, though... Or my own. And we are discussing Under the Radar, which yeah. is a producing partner of Under the Radar. So disclosure, take Jack's yeah. opinion on that topic with that information in mind. Yeah, but you, like I said in the past, I don't fuck around with you guys. So No, uh, you don't. No. But yeah. You just no, no, say silent. regime. It we is trust regime. you. You're a trusted voice. I am also yes. a company man, so I understand. Um, yes. Disclaimers and all that good stuff. And I am Lindsay, the founder of Maximu. So what I thought... I just at the end of that popped my lips. That's why <laughs> I just saw, heard myself do it, and I went, "What the fuck?" <laughs> Damn you, Barons. Anyway, sorry, we can cut all this out. We had a small lesson in advance of today's podcast about lip smacking. We're hoping it prevents hundreds of edits. No, which, which, but you, psychologically, what that means is that I'm going to do it twice as often as no, I normally I don't think do. So. I no, it means it you're going to do it and then think about it and lose your train of thought, and then yeah. we have to get back. This episode's going to be twice as long. Yeah. Okay. This digression, Exhibit A. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm so ready. what I thought we would do is start by running through each of the shows we previewed, some of which we've already discussed, but some of which we have not yet spoken about. So we'll just give our quick overview, although feel free to go as in-depth as you would like. So we started with Holler Sessions. Right. Which we talked about last week. Sure and did. Loved, loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, I think that's a real top yeah. show coming out of yeah. the festival that's the one i keep sending people to and they're like what's the best thing you've seen at the festival i'm like go see holler sessions yeah that's a big thing and by the way i mean by the time you guys are listening to this podcast all these shows will have been will have closed however i think it's important to like mention these because a lot of them a lot of times these festival shows do come back oh definitely yeah. and hang around or they or they tour around the country so like you know even though yes the holler sessions will have closed as part of the coil festival by the time you hear this i bet you it's going to come back in yeah. some way, shape, or form over the year. So you can be on the lookout for it. Well, right. And not all of our listeners are in New York. Some of them are elsewhere. Right. And Which is the, I think these things will be visiting you and globally abroad. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so number two is The Art of Love, part one, Elliot, right. by... Uh, the Royal well, Osiris Karaoke, karaoke ensemble. ensemble. Thank you. I was going to mix up the order of those words. I appreciate Cheers. you jumping in. <laughs> So I think, I mean, that show was um, really interesting and I think provoked a lot of strong emotions, at least in me. Mm. Um, maybe some mixed opinions on yeah. our end. And I noticed in the reviews mixed opinions, but definitely people were, they had feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it enough that I would like to see where this series goes. Same. 
Yeah, me too. I, I really have enjoyed this piece. And like I think I mentioned on one of the previous podcasts, I had seen the earlier version uh, that um, Royal Osiris had done in last year's Under the Radar Festival as part of the incoming series. And there was a lot of new stuff in this version. So it actually makes me excited to see cause, So now what I know is that they're really excellent developers, mm-hmm. and all of their new stuff was amazing. It was actually my favorite parts of the show. Um, so I'm very excited to see what happens next because they've proven that they can add shit and really improve the pace great okay next was morpheus series which was a dance piece brought over from australia at coil i saw this it blew my mind damn it was this the 18 minute yes i had a ticket for this and i i just fell asleep i couldn't do it Oh my god! I know. Yeah. I suck. I know. I'm so sad to hear that. Oh, so, really? I don't know if you remember how I introduced this, but what I said was I read a bunch of reviews in Australia, and all of them were very sensitive to this idea of spoiling it for people, so they actually didn't go into a lot of detail. And what I will say is that it's a very interesting combination of sensory deprivation followed by montages of movement, dance, color light music sound and spoken word poetry remember it was visual haikus right right definitely nailed it on the description with the visual haikus which is what they call it that's exactly what happens um if you think you don't care about spoilers and just want to know go read the new york times review it is essentially a play-by-play Oh, those if you jerks. think there's any chance you will be seeing this, I strongly recommend you not read that review. I mean, it spoils it down to every single layer of the performance. How did they do that? Um, I, I thought it was just fantastic. And the fact that it was so brief really heightened every moment of it. And it just made me wonder about, you know, theater, contemporary theater is all about form busting and multi-sensory experiences and how little we play with runtime at the theater. I mean, we're kind of into these marathon performances right now, the six-hour, the eight-hour, the ten-hour, which is cool. I'm into that, too. But, wow, the uber short and pointed is also extremely interesting. That seems like something that should catch on in New York with the you know, the need for space, the cost of running a show, and frankly, how many people in New York are like, oh, it's a 7 o'clock show and it's 60 minutes, no intermission, can't wait. Right. Yes. Although I will say, I do not think this is a cheap show to produce. Oh. I've noticed that too. Like, a lot of times when you see shows that are, like, less than an hour that mm-hmm. are, like, fully produced, chances are the budgets are pretty high. Like, I'm thinking about Generations, which I think was less, like, 28 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was, for anybody who saw that, like, that looked expensive to that do. That was at yeah. Soho Rep. That was at Soho Rep last year and had a huge cast, and they yep. completely transformed Walker Space into this very uh, detailed uh, sort of immersive sensory experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but maybe I, maybe it will start to become a trend because yeah, you can't argue with the runtime. Yeah, can you? I love that. Yeah, that was great. Okay, the last hotel at Prototype. Yeah, you know I um, uh, didn't see this is the only show I ended up seeing at Prototype, which mm-hmm. I'm sorry about because you know as I previewed in the very first festival episode that we did, uh, Prototype is uh, a relatively new festival that focuses, <clears throat> excuse me, mostly on opera slash musical theater and how the twain meet. Um, so The Last Hotel was something I previewed that was is an opera, a new opera written by uh, uh, 
Donna Dennehy and Enda Walsh. And it's sort it's this four character opera about a couple that we learn is in the business of helping people uh, commit suicide. And they have met this young Irish woman on a coastal town in this hotel um, that is sort of populated by this very creepy um, and mysterious uh, porter fellow. Um, and, you know, as I am not an opera person, I do not, uh, I, I, you know, I very infrequently go to opera. I, w- I need to see more of it because I want to learn all the rules of it. I have to say that I, this didn't help me, like, bridge the gap between myself and opera because it, it is a very, tr- it felt, at least to me as a novice, a very traditional opera. And so I'm less, like, I don't really, I, I know what an aria is, but I don't know how to, like, separate it from the show you know so i feel like i just there's a fundamental vocabulary that i'm missing so uh i didn't respond like 100 percent. i wasn't super engaged with the last hotel but i feel like that's more my fault than the show's fault oh no jack no that's not fair to really? yourself <laughs> really no no no. i mean it's just, it is one of those things like i i and I, one of the things i like about these festivals is it gives me the opportunity to really check my you know, what I'm fluent in. And opera is definitely not one of those things. I had a hard time following it. Yes, um, but you're being very generous to the production and I think a little too hard on your own reaction okay, to so it. Okay, so you saw it, I Lindsay. also yeah. saw this. I also found it very obtuse. And even its central themes, I thought, were poorly communicated. And while I think that was probably intentional, I it made the piece less successful. I did see another uh, performance at Prototype. I went to Dog Days. And this was um, very similar in um, the sense that both operas were dealing with uh, extreme situations, uh, lives in crisis. Uh, Dog Days is a post-apocalypse type of space where you watch a family deal with extremely hostile and difficult situations and um i'm not going to review that performance because the reason i saw it was because i was interviewing lauren warsham the star of that an interview we'll be having on max moo later this week so stay tuned it's a two episode week cool um so i will just say that in all the ways that i thought that the last hotel was confusing and like i said already obtuse dog days was clear it was provocative it was emotional and it was Mm. successful in communicating that to the audience whereas i feel like the last hotel did not succeed in those ways you know it actually made me think as i was leaving um the performance of the last hotel i saw i started thinking about my relationship to opera in general and one of the things i thought about anytime i think about a form that i'm less familiar with i always start to think of like okay what i need to figure out is why this form what is it about opera dance poetry um sort of uh you know any sort of like fudging of the borders between any of those things i mentioned multimedia performance what is it about this story or this idea that requires this particular medium and that is something that i was watching last hotel and i was going i don't know the answer why this needs to be an opera as opposed to a play as opposed to short stories but you know what i mean and so i anyway anytime i encounter i think that's one of the things that's great about these festivals is it it you sort of have to think about form in a way that i think if you're a casual theater goer you take for granted Mm -hmm. um so, you know, I was, so I was grateful for that. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting way of analyzing the different types of show you see in a in a festival environment like this, and asking that question about the last hotel. I join you in confusion. Yeah. Okay, next show, Disco Tropic. We discussed that in <laughs> yeah. depth. So good. Anything to add there? We were, I think Just generally rad. great show. Yeah, awesome. Cool. All right, next we discussed three exponential shows, which Exponential is running some of its shows late into the month, including Long Yarn and Biter right. every time I turn around. We will be discussing those as a podcast next week, so we won't go into depth there unless there's anything anyone here wants to add there. I'm excited to go to all of them. Yeah, yes. someone came up to me yesterday and was raving about Biter, so... Awesome. Yeah. And I have been studiously avoiding the review for Long Yarn that was written up in the Times, but I have <laughs> seen some congratulatory-type tweets towards Banana Bag and Bodice, so I'm assuming that that was well-received. Oh, those guys. Yeah, our favorite theater company name. <laughs> I love it. All right. Intimacy at Coil. We saw a song by Ranters mm-hmm. Theater, but we originally had previewed Intimacy, which was a performance uh, later in the festival. Right. Yeah. Who saw this? I saw this. Yeah. No, I did. I ended up passing in favor of other stuff because yeah. I already saw a song. So. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a rare opportunity um, in a festival season to uh, be able to encounter a theater company's work twice, mm-hmm. you know, two different things uh, within the span of a week. Because yeah. usually it's like, oh, I just got a little glimpse of this artist or these artists and then, okay, then, then they leave New York mm-hmm. most of the time. So th- it was really great to have seen song, have digested it, talked about it uh, with you guys and then to go see Intimacy, um, which was a very different show. It was uh, actually more of a performance. Um, It is, as the title would suggest, it is ostensibly this Australian theater company's look at um, intimate conversations with strangers. And it, the marketing blurbs tend to imply that these the, – the dialogue that is in this show are actually derived from real conversations that they had with strangers. And the topics range from uh, – essentially the, the formatting of it is that there's – it starts out with two guys just sitting on stools. And they just are talking to one another about um, you know what they're like and – and it starts out as a very normal conversation. They're talking about their interests and their family lives and stuff. And then it starts to get a little strange. And you start to wonder, wait, what's going on here? And then other members of the theater company come out and start to have different conversations about dreams and about infidelity and about fears. Uh, there's one incredible sequence that is about um, uh, sleep deprivation and insomnia mm. that has kind of freaked me out. Um, and I, I kind of I liked it a lot. I don't know exact. I can't really pinpoint how I felt about it, but it gave me this general sense of unease, hmm. and I couldn't put my finger on why it made me feel uneasy. But I liked it, you know. Um, one of the things I will say that is true, uh, I've now learned about Ranters Theater is their use of music is a really interesting, very specific, strong choice, um, because slowly throughout Intimacy. Uh, background music, not unlike um, what Ivo Van Hove does, um, mm. like Interview from the Bridge, that constant sort of like Sing background. It on Wednesday. There's a well, there's a constant score in the background, um, which isn't spoiling anything. Uh, that is the case of Intimacy too, and it adds something to very banal conversation that I find really fascinating. Um, so yeah, I mean, we got to know this theater company pretty well uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, and it was lovely to have them here. They're a really interesting group. Yeah, you do a lot of different things. Your description makes me wish I had seen that. Sounds really interesting. And also that that I had underscoring under all my conversations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
I feel like that was the one that I described in the previous. You were like, oh, God, oh, no, no. <laughs> it sounded it's scary, like yeah. potentially interactive. It's not. It's not interactive at all. And it was. it's really actually, considering what the marketing blurb says it is, it's actually pretty tame. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, there's not a lot of super weird or fucked up conversations. It never feels like, you know, oh, I, maybe these theater, maybe, maybe these, this theater company is like exploiting these strangers and what they're saying because it's very intimate details. It's actually not that intimate. In terms of content, but in terms of how it is being described, mm-hmm. it is quite intimate, is the only way I can describe it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, next, uh, Ride on the Irish Cream by Aaron Markey at American Realness down at Abrams. This is a musical. I thought I made that clear last time around, but a couple people mentioned that they were un didn't know going in that this was a musical so i mean aaron markey is a principally a musical artist she is a actress but also a songwriter and she wrote the songs and the music for this is a love story um it's a memory play that is a love story between a young girl that aaron markey plays and her family boat slash horse what (laughs) Yes, okay. of course. Played right. by Becca Blackwell. Played by? Wait a minute. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. And it is a uh, it has a, a very strong book. There's a lot of spoken elements to it that are highly stylized, yeah. and uh, there's quite a bit of humor. Uh, both the lead performers are extremely engaging, just in their own rights, outside of this performance even. Um, I've seen Aaron several times. Liz has seen Becca before. Um, we knew going in that even if the show was crap, that these two performers would carry it. Glad to report the show's not crap. It's great. Hooray. Um, it's very funny and upbeat, but also with some serious moments as uh, a memory play is wont to do. Mm. Um, I will say there are there's an onstage band who is great at playing the music, but some of the band members also per- provide... Um, backing vocals and at times um, their vocals are very prominent and they I'm not sure that they are up to that task Mm. I noticed that it every time that I thought those backup singers were going to start to sing I was like clenched from head to toe Uh and I I say this as someone who is by no means an expert in music, but just somebody who goes to the theater a ton and loves music and listens to music all the time. It was just really weird to feel like there was a great show going on with strong performances across the board, except for this element of it that kept interjecting itself and making me feel really uncomfortable, like kind of grimacing and looking around to see if everybody else was equally feeling uncomfortable. So I don't know if that is something that can be remedied in this production, um, but it was extended. It got a nice long extension. I'm so thrilled. Yeah. Can't wait to see it. And um, it, it, it's a great show. I had a ton of fun of it, fun at it minus this just two backing vocal singers who I, that sounds pretty minor compared to the rest of the show. Yeah. That's yeah. good. All right. Uh, next show was, uh, oh, two UTR shows, Bone Hill and It Gets Bitter. 
Which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, why okay. don't you mention them? I'll just mention them briefly. Um, Bone Hill, uh, b- both of these shows were part of a new thing that uh, we're doing under the radar, which is um, under the radar in concert at Joe's Pub. So both of these shows uh, were in Joe's Pub. Uh, Bone Hill, um, which is by Martha Redbone, who's an incredible incredible um, singer-songwriter who's uh, been at the pub many, many, many times, uh, is developing this show uh, that was originally commissioned as part of Joe's Pub's uh, New York Voices, which is the same um, commissioning arm that brought us uh, Rock Bottom by Bridget Everett, for example. Uh, it, so uh, Bone Hill is an autobiographical story about Martha Redbone, who is from Kentucky and uh, has roots, has uh, African-American um, and uh, uh, Native American roots in addition to white roots. And it's sort of this big multi-generational story about, you know, being all American in this very non-traditional way. Uh, The music is absolutely extraordinary. Um, Martha, you know, I don't know when the next time uh, the New York public is going to be able to see Bone Hill after the Under the Radar Festival, but Martha tends to stop by the pub, um, you know, with some frequency. So I would really, really urge you guys, um, if you see her coming up on the Joe's Pub calendar, to to give her a look. It's 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 blues sort of filtered through native music, filtered through um, sort of Appalachian country music. It's really, really strong stuff. Uh, very moving. And then um, the second show is uh, It Gets Bitter by Dark Matter, uh, a duo of uh, of queer Southeast Asian poets. Um, and this was a- another one of the, the shows that uh, made its debut last year in Under the Radar as part of the Incoming Festival. And this was like their big full-time show. So the last time I saw this show, it was like in that weird attic space at La Mama a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it was just the two of them that looked like they just came off the street and they kind of were just riffing on um, poems that they had either written together or written separately um, and delivered in a very slam poetry style. And this production this year was like, there was like lighting cues and there was costumes and there was sound effects and, and there was a DJ at the beginning. It was really cool. Um, they are... Uh, a a young duo that is one of the they as a cohort are one of the smartest theater companies I've ever encountered. Uh, the the they uh, it's, as the title would suggest, uh, dark matter sort of their whole mission is to take apart the straight white male patriarchy um, wherever it lives and in unexpected ways. One of their poem essays is called Dear Dan Savage and absolutely takes apart <laughs> the white male supremacy of the gay rights movement that Dan has sort of inserted himself as the leader of. Um, and so this performance is a very confrontational one and very, uh, one should say, aggressive one. Uh, it's a very passionate performance, but it never feels like they're being assholes. It's, uh, their, their lasers are focused, but they're not too hot they're just kind of warm i don't know i i've never had my privilege thrown in my face so aggressively and not minded in my life hmm. well this was one of the hottest tickets in town yeah, I mean, yeah it I sold out quickly Gone. and there was no amount of string pulling that could get you a ticket to this show yeah, yeah. do they have any sort of online presence do we know do they I'm have sure. video like I just want to see them at slash read this poetry. They, you know, after each show, they were like, you know, doing the Joe's Pub merch thing out in the lobby. And they do have a book of their poetry um, okay. called It Gets Bitter, um, which I just assume is everything that all of us heard in Joe's Pub in written form. 
I will say that they're as performers, they're extraordinary. So if you do get the chance again to see them perform their work live, it's like I exponentially better than just reading it. But part of me also does want to read it because their delivery, their style is so fast and in your face. It's part of the sort of relentless, forceful nature of what they do that I kind of do maybe want to spend some time with it written down so that I can absorb more of the punch of uh, you know each phrase. Uh, yeah, you know these. The, the thing that's most exciting about um, these two artists is their youth. I think because their work is already so smart and so strong and so passionate and so moving, and it's only going to get better as they get older and wiser. I think. Um, Do they perform at Joe's Pub regularly? No, I mean, or at least not to my knowledge. I know that they, um, you know, perform, or at least I, I've heard they perform more in like the poetry circuit. So. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and sort of in the festival circuit. I know that I think they first came to uh, sort of wide attention in the Squirts Festival, uh-huh. um, uh, oh, which yeah. is where sort of they were plucked from. Um, from yeah, the radar. I saw them tweeting about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and also, by the way, they're fantastic on Twitter. You should follow them on Twitter. But also, they're just awesome, a lovely online extension of it. So yeah, Dark Matter, it gets bitter. I really cannot say enough amazing things. I, these are two artists that I know I'm going to be following with Ernest for years and years and years. Fantastic. Okay. So now some shows that we did not preview, but that we saw, shall we start with yesterday, tomorrow, Liz? Sure. So yesterday, tomorrow is a commission piece. Did you know that? I did not. I didn't realize that. Yeah. With, with, uh, coil and a couple of other international festivals. So Annie Dorson, who created the piece, works a lot with algorithms and the science of theater and performance and Mm. music. And so it's very easy to sum up. We have three performers and they start off singing yesterday by the Beatles and gradually over the course of an hour, that song morphs into tomorrow from Annie. That's a huge oversimplification of what happened. (laughs) Um, But so they... They start off, they sing the first two verses of Yesterday a couple of times over. And you can watch on the walls, there are three or four uh, projection screens with the lines running. And they're running that song through this algorithm, which I looked up this morning. I I woke up this morning, I was telling Lindsay, like 7.45, I go, I need to learn about science. (laughs) Like, I just, I needed to know how this show works. So I spent a lot of time on the internet uh, this morning. I'm not a scientist, but I did read Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> so that that's got to be your motto, Richards, Liz Richards. I'm not a scientist, but I read Wikipedia. It also qualifies you to play a scientist on a podcast. So. It's true, perfect. Mm-hmm. So, as the expert in the room, okay. So she uses it's algorithmic theater, which uses evolutionary computation. You guys are looking at. We're eager to so learn. Intense. Okay, so this evolutionary computation is a way to mimic Darwin's evolution process. Wow. So, and they're doing it live. That's another thing I thought during the show. I thought there must be, it must be pre-planned. Because they sing, they're all, they start off singing the same and then it Wait, all splits. What? Okay. Back up. Okay. What do you mean they're doing it live? Okay. So what they're doing during the performance, as best I can tell from all of my science today. Right. Um, so they're running the song through this evolutionary algorithm. 
that starts making random changes and then if the random, random? changes random changes and if and it's going they know what the goal is and it's running this music through these algorithms with random changes and then some of them stick and some of them don't much like evolution and natural selection yeah so sometimes when both of them would hit the same note at the same time that note would stick in the next verse so it just keeps going and the and singers are singing that as it's happening yes, yes. this is yes. un okay i saw this performance it's unreal and i thought it was amazing what Liz has just told me, my fucking brain is on the ceiling. It's, wow. It was out of control. Because first you're like, oh, because I just thought, well, that's a lot of different versions of yesterday that they have to learn. Because notes start dropping out, new words pop in. Um, it'll get, some of them will be singing it at double the speed. Sometimes it'll slow down. But there's three of them, and there's three different tracks. And, and there's a little red line that goes across. And each of them just sings whenever it hits. So it must change every night, which is also fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we have to go into more detail here. So there are three singers. I yeah. think there's a soprano, an alto, and I'm not sure, a baritone yeah. or something like that. Yeah. They're not singing the same thing. They're singing the, For like the first two tracks. verses, they're singing the same thing. And then it just and all And then it just explodes. breaks apart. So they are singing different notes different words get the fuck out of here the the songs separate and at, at one point in the early in the process it sounds like they're singing in a round like row 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 your boat in a yeah. round so it sounds like they're singing yesterday in a round but then it starts to break apart even more so the songs the then rhythms, like what i'm seeing is like yeah. go today and you're like wait what and then gradually the words start rearranging and then by the end of it they're singing Tomorrow. So this it's, performance is remarkable on at least two fronts. One, the science. I had no idea that it was this organic, we know we're going from A to B, but how yeah. we're going to get there is a complete mystery. But these people are singing this live, and I don't even know how you can be a skilled enough singer to pull no, this off. They must be incredibly talented. I mean, they are that incredibly talented singers. That is insane. I'm so mad I missed this. I want it. I want to do it. Well, I sounds, hope you get a chance. It to sounds see like she it. does a lot of work like this, Annie Dorson. Um, Annie Dorson, I'm putting that name in. My yeah, list. it sounds like this is kind of her thing, and I, I would love to see. I, I will say to this show, I didn't understand what the choreography. They, there's like couch choreography going on. I'm not really sure what it had to do with the show, but the music is so remarkable that I don't even care. I thought it was like, let's just do a visual thing. Move when I flash your row. Yeah. Oh what. Like the oh, music is on these three scrims, no, no, yeah, I, and there's a bar that's moving across it to indicate to the singers and I guess kind of the audience like where we're at. Mm. Yeah, um, and then every once in a while, one of the three rows would kind of bold, and at that instant, that performer would change. Oh, I didn't their, even notice it, but it was tied to that change how they were sitting and at one wow. point they all were on one couch and some points they gathered in the front of the room and they were standing and sitting there was a big and... glowing buddha i didn't know cool. what that buddha had to do i with don't anything. know i don't Doesn't know. matter you just need it honestly yeah I, I mean it. you would have to be in a deep meditative trance as a performer to be able to pull this off maybe like, that's why be, buddha's there to be following your own line of music that is unpredictable yeah I just, my God, I know, the isn't that skill crazy? level. I had assumed that these people had spent like 
years in an isolation booth learning their own music. Right. I thought that they had learned their track and learned their track and were just tuning everything. But to be figuring that out on the fly and just, I mean, really just sight reading that quickly for an hour is phenomenal. Focus. Yeah. Yeah. Focus is amazing. Well, they all sound much more talented than any of us. And I want to see that show. Yeah. Well, it closed, but maybe it'll come back. Um, Annie Dorson, come back. I know. Where is she from? But, but I'm guessing if it was commissioned by a couple of different festivals, I'm sure it's going to move around. Holland Festival, Black Box Theater, PS122, La Viette. I mean, just theaters all over the world all right, involved fine. with this. So. All right. Time back. for some travel. Going back to New York. We have theaters for you. How about next? Now I'm fine at Under the Radar. Aha, uh-huh, May Filet. Aha, uh-huh, Fish Filet. Uh-huh. Which is what I kept calling him and then realized that was... Because he, he gives a really great story about how to remember his name, and I probably forgot it. Um, Boy, how so. to describe uh, this show and Ahame Filetoluo. Um, that is, uh, Ahame Filet, by the way, is a, the first name of uh, this uh, performer who is a bunch of things. He is a stand-up comic. He's also a trumpet player. He also leads a band that I've been trying to describe the sound of it. It's sort of big band meets neo soul is the best combination yeah, that's of really things good, that actually. I've come up with. It's like imagine if you know, you know, Duke Ellington. You were watching Duke Ellington's band with all the horns and all the strings and the sort of like the platforms uh, that those of the big band era. But then also D'Angelo sang for them. Like that's what it. Um, and the D'Angelo in this case uh, is uh, a guy who's I, I forget his name, but he, he's referred to as Soul Child. Yeah, Okanamondo Soul yeah, Child. Yeah, who's incredible. So this is uh, so Ahame Filet uh, basically is telling this story about his life, a very autobiographical story about um, his parentage, the fact that he never really knew his father, who was, uh, his father was Nigerian, um, his mother's white, and uh, he and his siblings had a very strange relationship uh, with their father. In addition to that, uh, not to give anything away, because I hope Ahame Fale brings this back, uh, he had some personal trials relating to his health, that uh, nearly killed him, um, and it's it's not um, an affliction that anybody had ever heard no, of. I, I, I promise you. Yeah, I was with a friend of mine, and the show ended, and he just went, "This is not a show for hypochondriacs." No, it's and not. I, no, it's not. No, um, but so what? Basically, <laughs> new what things is, to be scared of catching. So the the, the format of the show is that Ahmed kind of speaks, d- does his sort of. Um, uh, you know, speaks for the audience as in sort of a monologue, and it's sort of a hybrid of like I would say monologue and stand-up comedy. It's definitely very funny um, and uh, very driven by Ahame Fale's personality. And then he'll go back up to his conductor stand and then you know conduct a song. Um, and at first, if they feel disconnected, I first, yeah. first ten minutes I'm like, what is this? And then by the end, I didn't understand literally how they mesh together. I did understand emotionally and spiritually how they fit together. And by the end of it, I started very skeptical going, what is this? By the end, I had tears running down my face. It was so goddamn beautiful. Um, I This was one of the best, by far, shows I've seen in, in the festivals. I loved it. Liz, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the, the way the band tied in for me, actually, in the first 10 minutes, he has this whole, um, his whole opener, I guess, is about just being uncool. And what it is to be a a kid who is uncool, which I feel like many of us have maybe felt. I don't know. (laughs) You're so cool. Um, But but then he's talking about what it is to 
be uncool and sort of embrace that. And then he goes to conducting a, a band, which is playing sort of this swing, you know, retro soul sound. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that's pretty uncool. Like, it's cool to me now, but I can see, like, that's yeah. old, it's dated, it's, like, not. And then he sort of brings this new twist to it by bringing in uh, Soul Child, um, yeah. who's a phenomenal singer. Um, yeah, and... Because for me, the thing that was that I, the the juxtaposition that I loved was his sort of his deep humility and his you know honesty about being such a, an outcast as a kid, and then he steps up to his little conductor post and proceeds to be this badass motherfucker. Like the way he he's one of these conductors, he conducts with his whole body. He's mm, like bobbing yeah. back and forth. He looks like a boxer getting ready to go into a. It's it's very hypnotizing and I would say very cool to watch. I was, he's yeah. Like, he's like, I was an uncool kid and then he gets up there and is like the coolest motherfucker on the planet. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this guy now is interesting to me. He's both of these things. How do we get there? And then he tells us. Yeah, I just, I think the story is fascinating. I, it's a story I came out thinking and this is, I would, I would never wish the things that happened to him on people. No. But when those things happen, I'm really glad that they happen to strong performers who can bring that story to people. Yeah. You know? Who can wrestle calamity uh, to the ground. Exactly. And, into... and just and make it a really a really interesting story, a very human story that's even though it is so out there in the realm of possibility, you would think, it's still so humanizing yeah and i also enjoyed that it really wasn't a well i guess it has a happy ending of sorts Mm -hmm. but a good chunk of the show is about terrible things and just acknowledge what it means to acknowledge when something is terrible instead of yeah ignoring it but with the with the knowledge that well i mean (laughs) the spoiler about the ending is in the title of the show so i don't you know the show is called now i'm fine but I think his definition of what those words mean are not what you listeners probably think they mean. Yeah. Which is what's really cool. Um, if you guys want to, I mean, obviously, like all these shows we're talking about, uh, this has closed. If you want a sense of the kind of music we're talking about, um, this the, the music of this show, well, first of all, adorably, Aha Mayfile at the very end um, said, by the way, as you guys are all leaving the theater, a CD of this entire show is yours for free. And so everyone get a free CD. Yeah. It's also on Spotify and iTunes, though. So if you oh, didn't cool. get to didn't see, see the show, I've been playing the final song on a loop yes. since I saw this show four days ago. Um, so, yeah. It, and and the, uh, the title of the album is Now I'm Fine, um, Aha Me Filet. Um, and, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I, I think it was an incredible piece of storytelling. Just ugh, so good. Yeah. Next confirmation at the quail festival this is a one-man show by written and performed by chris thorpe he is from the uk this was developed over there and brought over here for this festival uh developed with and directed by rachel chavkin of the team the busiest director in the world no kidding so this show is called confirmation and it is very much about confirmation bias he Hmm. stands in the round and tells you a story about his experience exploring the concept of confirmation bias. And the way he decided to do that was to go out and find somebody who was just like him in terms of uh, it was a white man. It came from a middle-class background. He was educated, 
but held the polar opposite political views of himself. Uh, Chris is um, a progressive liberal, to use uh, U.S. terms. Um, And this person was a white supremacist and a Nazi. Glenn. Yes, he calls him Glenn, Glenn. which is not his real name. Um, And he... He recounts the story of, of trying to, of engaging Glenn in a series of conversations and trying to not let his confirmation bias overcome his perspective on Glenn and his view of the world. Um, and he does this, uh, Chris does this through a series of engagements with the audience. Mm. Um, there is some audience participation, some of which I engaged Lindsay in did. spontaneously. Oh, boy. Yes, she knew a Donald Rumsfeld quote. Yes, Good for that's her. True. <laughs> oh wow! Wait, you knew a Donald Rumsfeld quote, or you just had to say one? No, she... I knew it. Yeah. yeah, it was an inquiry, and he said, "Do you know what that quote is?" And I shouted out yeah. spontaneously. You, yeah, you said a couple words, and then he was like, "But there's more." And then we said more words, and, and then, then more there words. was a third part too. Yeah. It's a it's a three part quote. You Everyone got there. You did it. The three parts. Um, anyway, there are also parts where he hands cue cards to the audience and asks them to read questions he posed or responses he received from the Glenn. Um, so I, you know, this is a, a topic, a subject that I find actually pretty fascinating, being a person who has participated in the political world, being a person who was raised with a certain set of beliefs that I might not totally hold anymore, um, a person who has been surrounded by very diverse political views um, on extreme ends of the spectrum my whole life. I found this to be utterly fascinating chris is a super engaging performer and i really enjoyed it what did you think was yeah i thought it was really fascinating i didn't know anything about the show going into it i really just remember i think nicole said chris thorpe is a great performer and he is he is an incredibly engaging um speaker and very intelligent and everything was very easy to understand I, i do not have the political background uh, but yeah it's the way it shifts between and of course the way it sh- shifts between Chris and Glenn to at some points you're not really sure who he's speaking as mm-hmm. fascinating um, there's a whole part where it's an interview between the two of them or a debate between the two of them and they're huge chunks where I wasn't sure who was who that's really cool and he goes into that and talks about towards the end that he has to pull himself away because eventually not having a confirmation bias makes it very easy to slip into something like that. He, he could understand how that could happen yeah, yeah. and how someone who is educated and well-spoken, middle-class, white guy, how their paths could diverge wow. so, so far from each other. Which is something he doesn't really get into, actually. I know. I wish he'd gotten roots of this other person's political beliefs and his own, for that matter. Yeah. Um, you think that's necessary for, to? Well, I, I think it is part of what he's exploring mm. is how do you know two people who have a similar life experience, which is kind of, he, they have similar life experience on um, sort of the bullet level history, but. Clearly, their paths diverged at some point, yeah. and he does yeah. not go into a ton of detail about that. Hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot of why they believe what they believe. It's them defending what they believe. Mm-hmm. 
yeah or debating about it yeah i imagine it could be part of an 11 part series that delves into each one of them independently and then also their interaction it does challenge um in an election year you know you look at what people who you disagree with believe and you just think how could a human being possibly have reached that conclusion um and instead of just expressing disbelief it i think argues for at least an attempt to understand and inquire as opposed to jumping to conclusions and assumptions yeah he's very quick to not dismiss glenn and glenn's beliefs to the point where it it gets very messy Mm -hmm. yeah pretty interesting cool yeah all right i think we have one more and that shows oh escuela Squale, which I saw yesterday. Um, yeah, this is a, a show that's written and directed by Guillermo Calderon, um, who is a, 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 a frequent uh, collaborator at the Public Theater. Um, we produced his show Neva a couple years ago, um, uh, which was his uh, show about uh, Anton Chekhov's widow. Uh, that was, and he's so. This is a how to describe this show. Did anyone else see it? I did. Okay. Um, to describe the show, it's essentially, uh, as the name would suggest, it is about a school that is for revolutionaries in training. Um, this is all um, sort of springing out from the uh, in the nineteen seventies, um, uh, the Chilean uh, revolutionaries, uh, right? Of of which uh, Guillermo Calderon was part of that generation. Um, so it's something that's. Um, you know, in his Chilean background, that's something that's very intimate to him. But it all—it's not confined to Chile. It's actually, you know, there's references to Mao Zedong, there's references to Ho Chi Minh, and a few other revolutionaries. And essentially, the scenes are these um, masked uh, revolutionaries sort of taking classes about all the ways all the things you need to know to be an armed revolutionary, like how to shoot a gun and how to handle a bomb and how to um, disseminate um, and exchange information discreetly um, and also how to engage in psychological warfare as opposed to violent warfare. Um, it's a really... it's it's But like, you know, Guillermo Calderon is one of these uh, uh, writers I really like because he deals with very serious subjects and it's very, of course, hard <laughs> to watch the show and not think about contemporary images of terrorism in this country in particular um but it's also very funny and kind of goofy not just like not like really smartly like dig dig at you oh new yorker funny it's just goofy funny which i love um it's uh, a show that is you know for all of its uh you know the sort of the the bigness of its ideas is actually a pretty intimate small meditation on what it means to be a um to to want to rise up uh, and and pick up arms, we have this idea and these narratives in this country and other countries that people who pick up arms and are revolutionaries are uh, stupid or zealots or you know these very inflamed, impassioned people. And in this show, they're kind of jerks and idiots like us, which I kind of found <laughs> was a really I was a was a warm perspective for me. Um, I don't know, Lindsay, what did you think? Well, I had. Now realize I actually have seen a Guillermo Calderon show before, but yeah. I thought I had not. Okay, because he had a show at the public last year, right? That was also. Am, am I getting this wrong? I thought he had a show a year or two ago at UTR that was also set in Chile under the Pinochet regime. You're talking. You're talking about Lola Arias. Different artist. Yes. Yeah, really. Yeah, that was not Guillermo. That was Lola oh Arias. Oh my gosh. 
This is so interesting. Different Chilean For a whole yeah. host of reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of which is that apparently the public is the pipeline for Chilean artists producing revolutionary works in response to the Pinochet regime mm. to come into the United States and perform it under the radar festival. What a niche. Yeah. Indeed. Um, so I missed that earlier one. And then when I saw the description of this one, I actually thought it was the same artist producing a, like kind of a secondary show about mm. a similar context. And I regretted missing that first one. Um, I think partially scared away by the subtitles and uh, feeling overwhelmed by the festival season and not knowing if I would have the focus necessary to attend a show where that was required. Um, But this time I was like, I'm absolutely going to this show. And um, I have a background in union organizing and uh, nonviolent resistance and um, a lot of political organizing. Well, welcome home. And Jeez. so <laughs> this touched very, very close to my heart. Um, I've never trained in any kind of revolutionary resistance, but I think what the point you made, Jack, was so interesting because it is all about context. If there were individuals behaving in this manner, educating themselves in this manner in the United States, and let's say they were Muslim, we would be terrified. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if this had been in Arabic with English subtitles as opposed to Spanish, yes. I think it'd be a very different show. In yeah, that's what I was thinking of just from your description yeah. of it. But for a group of young people suffering under the Pinochet regime in Chile, this is acts of nobility. Mm-hmm. And it is honorable. And yet we see that the individuals who take up arms to overthrow dictators are, as you said, Jack, just like us. They're goofy. They are not trained in a military sense, right? They are trying to take on military activities. They're trying to engage in a coup, essentially. And when you were living under a military dictatorship, this was the element of it that was missing that I didn't think came through as clearly as I would have liked, which Mm. is how much fear they were living under, right? This was a brutal dictator who came to power with some help from the United States, let's remember. Um, And people disappeared. Hundreds, thousands of people disappeared. Um, People lived under a a police state, essentially, and it was horrible and brutal. And yet somewhere within themselves and within their communities, they found the strength to resist. And that is, to me, the really, really fascinating angle on Chile. Indeed, it is what I wrote my senior thesis in high school or in college on. (laughs) So I was super fascinated by this show for showing us an angle into the elementary ways in which a person goes about learning this type of skill to engage in resistance to brutality. Yeah. And I just, I thought it was so, so interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things uh, that, that made me think of one is that, you know, I think the push and pull with this show is that, yes, it it is sort of, you can imagine the germ of it comes out of, uh, Guillermo's, uh, experience living, um, in that time, in that place. In fact, there's actually a little autobiographical touch Mm -hmm. in the show that is really affecting. Yeah. Um, so, but I think the push and pull is like, 
having it specifically come out of Chile, but also it being about sort of an extrapolated, object, more objective sense of armed revolution that can be applied to Chile as easily as it can be applied to Vietnam or China or Cuba or what have you. Um, I think that maybe where like the specificity of Pinochet's brutality got lost a little bit, mm-hmm. um, or it like wasn't present because there's that. But the thing that is, but the second thing that reminds me of is, you know, in this idea of you know, you know one man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorist kind of thing is that the show ends with some really beautiful, um, not in terms of content, but in terms of just stylistic idea references to other revolutionaries, namely Mao and Ho Chi Minh. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in the back of your mind, you know, you've kind of indeed, the show has endeared you to these masked armed revolutionaries. And then you start hearing names of actual revolutionary leaders that in this country we have been trained to believe are these objectively 100% terrible people um, and of course who arguably you know very arguably are terrible people were terrible people but anyway it, I'm just going like oh yes these sort of rather cuddly revolutionaries can become you know the sowers of the seeds of further tyranny you know right and that's something that is an undercurrent of the show that is super dark and super interesting to me yes power corrupts regardless of ideology yeah yeah it's um yeah there's a lot of revolution in the air in this city it's one of those things wow. with our shows you know and what and you know it reminds me of you know one of the things i'm no i'll say it, say it off mic and i can cut it <laughs> what I'm, I'm a big george washington nerd and the thing yeah. that always whenever i think about armed revolutionaries is that to my knowledge every single famous revolutionary who has like led the people and then one has always turned around and exacted just as much, if not more, tyranny on those people. Mm-hmm. Napoleon, Castro, yeah. uh, Mao Zedong, Ho Chi Minh, you pick, except one, and that's George Washington. George Washington could have done that and did not. I cannot think of another revolutionary who won and then ceded power. I cannot think of another example of that. Anyway. Mm. So, and you can see that on stage in Hamilton right now. Well, it's funny you should raise that show, which I know we kind of have a rule not of discussing on this podcast because oh, we show. overdo it. But, <laughs> but think Everyone about does. there. I, I there is a scene in Hamilton where all of these young men who are, we know now to be great historical leaders are plotting a revolution in a bar. Yeah. It's the exact same scene we saw in Escuela. And they're not pl- playing by the rules. Yeah, they're sitting... They're a small group of people who have big ideas, yeah. and they are plotting something that they think is going to make the world a better place. Yeah. And I think you can – and I've been in, in that room before thinking, like, we're just a band of motley people. And, like, most of the time you have big ideas, great ideas, and you're not successful at implementing them. Yeah. And so – there's a universality to that particular scene in Hamilton that I think can apply to the mid 20th century civil rights movement, to the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement, to gay rights and to women's rights. And to me, that is the moment where you see that the to me, the that actual brilliant i mean that show hamilton is brilliant on a multitude of levels but the one that always strikes me is the idea that um that this is how change happens it's just men and women sitting around in a bar 
that's yeah. where it yeah. starts. But then the connection, the place I thought you were going is that, but also the, a lot of the tactics that American revolutionaries use that are outlined in Hamilton are those used by um, historical and contemporary figures that we think of as more sinister. You know, the idea of, um, you know, provoke outrage outright, don't engage, strike by night. Yes, that was used by, you know, the uh, the Continental Army. It's also a tactic used by a lot of terrorist organizations. Right. You know, it's like, the, it's, tactic yeah. the tactic the is neutral. It's the ideology. It's the ideology that... behind it. Yeah. I'm really glad we brought that, that, little, that little show in here. Yeah, right. That little one. Well, anyway, it it's, it's just super fascinating <laughs> to see Escuela... The night following confirmation, actually. Yeah, it sounds like Those it. two shows are totally in, confir- mm. in conversation Look with out. one another across festivals, right? You have your ideas. You believe in them deeply. There are, oppos- there are people who you oppose. They have differing points of view. And how do you engage with them? How are you able to engage with them? How does the political structure allow for debate and compromise in Pinochet's Chile, there was none of that. There was no room for debate, and there was certainly no compromise. There was no road forward to make progress. Hopefully, we've come up in the United States now with a better system where we'll be able to make uh, some kind of peaceful resolution to the turmoil currently playing out in our presidential election, where we have some really extreme perspectives being offered by what I consider to be just complete whack jobs. And yet somehow we have to make peace with the thousands of people who are rising up and being moved by these messages of hatred and fear. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we digress, but the, but Oof. yeah, but I love also the, the connections between festival shows like that. There's a lot of cross pollination and synergy. I hope God, I just said that word. I hate um, <laughs> happening in these festivals. Yeah. Well, we were talking the other day about themes that we're seeing across shows. Mm-hmm. You know, it ties right into that. Yeah. So a few wrap up questions. Okay. How would you rate your festival scheduling? On the Goldilocks scale, too many shows, just right, too few. Oh, I think I think I could have done a couple more. I do oh. want to give a uh, a very hearty shout out to the box office people at these shows during these festivals. Holy shit, their work is tough. And I sat on the phone for half an hour with a lovely woman named Michelle, um, trying to figure out tickets to ride on the Irish Cream, which was sold out. And she was delightful and like really sour. She's like, okay, we well, have a better chance if you come rush this day or this day or I wouldn't come this time. And this is when we release the extra tickets at this time every day. And, so, and just wonderful and pleasant. But, oh, my God, all of the people who are working the boxes yeah. at these shows, they have a lot to manage in mm-hmm. a very quick amount of time. And I, while I'm not sure all of our shows started on time. No. In fact, ever. I'm certain none of them did. I don't think no. any of them did. But... <laughs> They are doing a phenomenal job all all across the board, I think. Really, yeah. really true. Um, and actually, I, I do want to single out because um, Abrams Art Center, where American Realness is, where um, Red Irish Cream yeah. is, year-round, I just want to see, you know, I, I like talking about who has the best seats. The best front-of-house staff and box-office staff that I can think of or I have consistently, like, an above-and-beyond experience is Abrams Art Center. Nice. Their front-of-house staff is unbelievably helpful and kind and awesome and fun and cool i just they're so wonderful and i think that every time i go so abrams art center great job hiring yeah. front of house staff yeah and that, that's my way of saying i didn't get into that show and i would have liked to have seen that i would have liked to gotten into morphia but it was sold out i would have liked to have seen it gets bitter that was sold out yeah. oh that yeah. was my next question oh 
Sorry. Oh, oh that's okay. But to answer that question, uh, what was the, what was the question? <laughs> Goldilocks. Oh, I uh, wait, way too many shows. Way How many, shows. many did you end up seeing? Um, well, I'm seeing four today. So by the end of all things, it will be 27 shows. Wow, that's a lot. Um, I th- I had tickets to 30. Oh and I gosh. had to blow off a couple just because sleep. But uh, yeah. yeah, 27, which is by far the most I've ever done. I did 14. And I have to say, I think it was just the right number. Yeah. That there right. are a couple of shows specifically that I wish I had seen. Um, I wish I had seen German All. Yeah. And I wish I had seen It Gets Bitter. Yeah. I tried. It was not possible. Yeah, totally. um, but I feel like I did a nice pace, a good. I had a couple of three show days. Um, which is not just not ideal. I mean, I just can't absorb. I can't truly immerse. I can't appreciate. I can't post show consider and dwell the way I want to. Yeah. I feel like in, in those sort of situations and I'm going like, Oh God, if this show starts late, then am I going to make it to the next one? What's my travel time? And then I'm just too worried about the, the in-between moments and I can't really focus on the piece. Yeah. I only, I saw 10 and I think I could have done a couple more. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, do you feel like you absorbed all those shows, Jack, or yeah. were you just on a treadmill? I mean, I was. It's more, so, you know, I see a lot of theater anyway, but I mean, we all do. But um, this was the most by far. I, I did feel like I absorbed it. And the other thing that's really cool about festival season is I, I inadvertently paced myself really well in terms of um, tone. Mm. So, like, I would see something that was really in your face and fucked up, and then I'd see something that was more meditative and quiet, and oh. I could kind of slouch a little bit and let it kind of wash over me. And then go into something really fun and funny, and then something really confrontational, and then back into, like, a slow thing. So I, that really helped. If I had seen, like, if I'd had, like, a five-show day where it was a lot of, like, where it was, like, Sister Sylvester five times in a row, that would have been too much. That's hard to manage, yeah. though. It's hard to predict. It, yeah, how predict do you so know? You the dice. And, so, and I, it just worked out this year. And um, I also had some really well-timed, like, days off, which were, which were great. Like, just, I had two. Yeah. Um, but what that meant was the other days I was seeing at least two shows a day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right, we already covered this, but any shows you didn't see that you wish you had? We already mentioned some. Anything else you want to throw Confirmation, out? Confirmation, shit. I wish I had seen that. Um that seems like it would have been really cool. Um, I I heard Angel's Bone at Prototype yeah. was amazing. Yeah, that missed it. a lot of hype. So I'm really pissed I missed that. Um, and then I guess right tomorrow, I guess everyone keeps talking about that. So, yeah, yeah, mind blown. All right, and then just any general reflections? How would you rate festival quality overall? How was your experience? I feel like we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, Lindsay. That. Last year, I saw a bunch of festival shows that just blew me away, like explosive, crazy. And then I saw some that were just terrible. And this year, I feel like everything I saw was pretty uniformly good. Totally agree. There weren't maybe as many shows that blew me away as much as last year. But I feel like I saw fewer things that I thought were terrible. Yeah. So I I think the quality was pretty solid yeah the quality is consistent which is not to say that it was like anything we saw was necessarily predictable or banal or yeah. anything i mean it's all it's all you know terribly unique theater but i agree with you it felt like there were fewer peaks and troughs and it was just sort of this sort of steady as she goes which i look there's nothing greater than a, an amazing mind-bending piece of theater there's also nothing worse than a totally offensive awful waste yeah. of time piece of theater um and so we but but for the large part avoided both there were a couple of shows that i did think were like shows i'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the year um and i'm glad i got a couple of those in yeah 
Yeah, agreed. Just overall, generally high quality. I'm not sure there's anything that will. Oh, hedge. Never mind. I don't know. I was thinking there's. I'm not sure there is anything that will end up on my like top ten best of list of the year. Um, like there was last year, there was at least one thing that blew us all away. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, there's nothing at that level this year, but there's a couple shows that I wouldn't be surprised if they made it to my list at the end of this year. Yeah, there are definitely some things I'll be thinking about for a while, mm-hmm. and I think might even sort of influence my behavior. For example, I plan to go out and buy the book that Chris Thorpe read yes. that led to thinking, his... thinking fast, thinking slow, and... The Righteous Mind. Those were the two books that he talked about. Yeah, I want to go buy those and read them. Yeah, I think Righteous Mind sound sounds really interesting. Very interesting. I'm going to go learn more science. Great. Yes, figure that out for us. And come I will. Back I'll report. come back in with some algorithms. <laughs> Resident Maximum Scientist, Liz Richards. Um, I got so, my PhD in podcasting. So wait, does this mean now we have to go like watch like regular ass theater? Oh yeah, I was going to say I also saw two shows that weren't festival, festival shows. shows. Yeah, me too. Which, um, you know, I, I want, I needed, I wanted to see those, but yeah, it is really tough to like balance the regular theater calendar when a festival yeah. season yeah. comes through. I, I'm off to noises off next week. I feel like it's going to be a great palette yeah, cleanser. Palette <laughs> cleansers, exactly. Yeah. Like I know it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. It's maybe not going to require as much mental gymnastics as yeah, some of these yeah, yeah. shows. Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I remember like the uh, one festival, particularly like rough festival season. The the day after it closed, I saw uh, After Midnight on Broadway, and that was the perfect palette cleanser. <laughs> Just tap dancing and singing. That's all it was. Um, the, actually, and also the last thing I'll say is I hope that as I previewed. Um, Last week or two weeks ago, um, the uh, Uncharted concert series at Ars Nova. I hope you guys got a chance to see them because I saw a few of them and they were amazing. I did not okay. get they a chance were, to I see amazing. them. I had conflicts for every single uh, one, but I saw yeah. you tweet that you were at them and they. I was just so jealous. Max Vernon in particular tore the roof off that oh, joint. Wow. It was nice. so Good. amazing. Um, and it was the day that David Bowie had passed away mm-hmm. and Max Vernon, uh, take one look at him and you're like, man, yeah, he, he's, David Bowie was probably important to him at some point in his life. <laughs> and he did this impromptu during one of his songs, a tribute to David Bowie that like, Whoa. I can spend the whole day like reading think pieces and seeing videos and feeling like, Oh, David Bowie's gone. And I wept when Max did this one little nod to David Bowie. It was just an artist crying out for to a legacy and that fact just the fact that it was one artist calling out to another one who had just left us made me just weep it was so gorgeous anyway but uncharted was fantastic um i hope you guys got this uh, some of you listeners got to see yesterday jack told me he rarely cries at the theater but it's like you cry a lot no i cried at that moment for max (laughs) vernon and then and then yeah amifale made me weep and that was like i was shocked by that. Maybe I'm going through some stuff, you guys. I don't Aww. know. But no, I really, I'm, I'm going back to being a complete you know, stone-faced monster for the rest of the year. All right, good. Get all that emotion out in the first two <laughs> weeks. All right, what else are we seeing? I want to mention um, a comedy thing I'm going to. Uh, Martin Luther King Day is tomorrow, and I am not sure this is the appropriate way to memorialize his legacy, but this is at the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, Theater, UCB. Um, from Astronomy Club, and it's called A Journey Through Black History. Mm. Behold the thirst of the Middle Passage, witness the style of the Underground Railroad, and revel in the memory of the greatest black inventors. This show is the realization of MLK's dream, or maybe his nightmare. Sounds good to me. 
I'm excited for that. Um, I'm seeing I'm seeing Utility, the new Immoralists show. Oh yeah. Oh for sure. Yeah, I don't know anything about it, but I saw that it was a new Immoralist show, and I said I'm there. Just gonna fuck with your shit, you know. Yeah, that I'm much. ready. I'm Always. ready. Um, I'm seeing a lot of cool stuff. Um, a couple new uh, plays that I'm excited about. I'm seeing this week: uh, In Quietness by Anna Munch and uh, yeah. Safe Word by Mariah McCarthy. Oh, that's right. I'm going to Safe Word. Oh, cool. I wonder if we're going to the same thing. Um, and uh, the last thing is um, the past two years at Under the Radar we've had uh, an artist who is one of my favorite artists in New York that it would be Toshi Regan and her band Big Lovely um, and she has had uh, shows in the Under the Radar Festival for the past couple years uh, this year she didn't but every end of every January she has her birthday concerts which is like five evenings at Joe's Pub with a bunch of her musically talented friends. And it is one of the highlights of the year in terms Ooh. of musical performance. Toshi Regan um, you know, at Joe's Pub. Um, get your ass to it. Awesome. Well, it's been an amazing three weeks. Thank you guys for yeah. coming on a week-over-week basis. Also, Liz thanked the front-of-house staff, but also thank you to these festivals and their PR staffs. We could not do these podcasts if we were not occasionally extended complimentary tickets so that we can talk yes. about them here. We sometimes pay for our tickets, but we often get press tickets, and we could not do this podcast without them. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Wait, 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 wait. Before you run away, there are two things I want to tell you. From time to time on the Max Moo podcast, we highlight fundraising campaigns by theater artists we admire in New York City. I want to tell you about an important one happening right now. One of the biggest challenges indie theater artists face in New York is real estate. Every year we lose theaters because of increasing rents. Right now, the Secret Theater in Queens is under threat of closing, and they're trying to raise $15,000 to keep the space open. This campaign came to my attention because of an appeal by Sean Williams, the executive producer of Gideon Productions, who created last year's brilliant Honeycomb trilogy. We'll link to that post and the fundraising campaign on this episode's page at maxmood.com. You really can make a difference by donating to this cause and help to save a precious performance space for indie artists in the city. The second thing is I just want to remind you to tune in on Wednesday for my delightful conversation with Lauren Warsham. And finally, you can find us all on Twitter. Max Moo is at M-A-X-A-M-O-O. Liz is at Miss Liz Richards, M-I-S-S-L-I-Z-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S. Jack is at Jack in Brooklyn, J-A-C-K-I-N-B-R-O-O-K-L-Y-N. And I am at Lindsay Barron's L-I-N-D. S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. We'll see you on Wednesday.